We need more of you and more of grace in our life. Thank you, Brad. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, so we're looking at the five solas today. Sola, grace, only grace. Let me start this way. The late Steve Jobs, the founder of the Apple Empire, was a guy whose life was a mixed bag of admiration and revulsion. Um, people either loved him or they hated him. And without a doubt, Steve's level of earthly success was so high that it has been difficult for writers to find a standard of comparison for him. Uh, they've been using names like Thomas Edison and Henry Ford. He was a, a visionary genius that revolutionized six different industries. He dropped out of college to start this company called Apple, and then when he was about 30 years old, he was very publicly fired from it. Uh, but his resilience was pretty amazing. His legacy includes the Mac computers and the Apple Empire, Pixar Studios, iTunes, and the iPod, then the iPhone, and then the iPad after that. He changed the way that we think about computers and phones and music and even about retail stores. He made technology cool. The New Yorker had a cover tribute to him um, and shows him standing at the pearly gate, standing in front of St. Peter, who's there holding the Book of Life. Only it's been upgraded to the iPad of life. <laughs> and the week that he died, there was a quote in the newspaper that said, 10 years ago in our country, we had Steve Jobs, Johnny Cash, and Bob Hope. Now there is no Jobs, no Cash, and Hope. <laughs> uh, he was an inventor or co-inventor on record of over 340 patents. He was an amazingly successful man. And then he died of pancreatic cancer at age 56. 56. Got me thinking, how much success is enough? How much is enough? Thought it might be interesting to see how we're doing. I mean, nobody really knows for sure. But just for the sake of argument, let's say that Steve Jobs was the standard for success in a life. So, how are we doing here? How many of you, look at a little show of hands, how many of you here have not launched a legendary organization that, uh, that passed in mobile, mobile Exxon uh, for one of the most powerful countries in the world? Okay? How many of you have not revolutionized six different industries? Okay? How many are not worth more than seven billion? Okay? All right, how many of you were not named Fortune Magazine's CEO of the decade? Okay. Raise right, your hands real high. Now look around the room. What a bunch of losers. <laughs> the truth is we want to be successful. We do. We like the thought of being the brightest. And that's why people drive it so hard. But I'll tell you a little secret about this. I'll tell you a little secret about the brightest and the best is that they live under a pressure that's killing them. Ambition can grind the life out of human beings. Out of the brightest and the best lives. Today we have middle school students who are living so relentlessly under the pressure of performance that they're going into therapy at 13 years old. We buy the biggest houses we can to proclaim our success. And then we work endless hours trying to pay for them. We overschedule our kids. We overschedule them with sports and private tutors and activities because we've got to get them into the right school so we can get them into the right jobs. Our kids have to be the brightest and the best because if they're not, how does it reflect on me? How much success is enough? 
There was another sports and business icon by the name of Al Davis. He died a while back. He was just a kid from Brooklyn. He was not even a real gifted athlete. But by sheer tenacity, he became the head coach and general manager of the Oakland Raiders. He was only 33 years old, youngest guy ever to do that. And in an occupation of the toughest people in the world, nobody was tougher than Al Davis. The motto for the Raiders under his watch was unforgettable. was this, just win, baby. <laughs> just win, baby. That was Al Davis. He fought to become an owner of the Raiders, even though he didn't come from a lot of money. He was famous for taking on misfits, renegades, rebels, people no other organization was willing to take on. He would take them on and take them under his wing. He willed the Raiders into five Super Bowls, and he achieved such prominence that he got legions of people all around the country, devoted followers all around the country that banded together and called themselves the Raider Nation. The Raider Nation. Nobody had to wonder when Al Davis was around where the buck stopped. There was a new player that came up to him one day and he asked the question, who negotiates the contracts for the Raiders? And this is Al Davis' response. He said, young man, I do the hiring. I do the firing. I decide how many waste, basket, waste paper baskets are in these offices. It's all me. He wouldn't back down from anybody. He sued the NFL to move the Raiders from Oakland to Los Angeles. And then he sued them again to move them from Los Angeles back to Oakland. <laughs> he could be an extraordinarily generous and loyal person, but he was not given to self-doubt or false modesty in any way. Um, when the New York Yankee boss, uh, George Steinbrenner, died, uh, he was interviewed, Al, Al Davis was interviewed, he said, George was right up there with me at number one. <laughs> in his own eyes, he was a top-level winner. I started wondering how much winning is winning enough. How much winning is winning enough? I want to see how many winners we have here. Just for the sake of argument, let's say that Al Davis is the standard of winning in a life. How many here have not won three Super Bowls? How many here are not in the NFL Hall of Fame? How many here do not have a national following calling themselves the U Nation? Okay. How much winning is winning enough? I started wondering a little bit further, and I thought, how attractive is attractive enough? You'll see a picture of Zac Efron in a minute. Big deal. Quickly <laughs> turns 50 and gains 50 pounds. Okay? Here's the point. If you're really young and you look good, people will tell you, you look good. But if you live long enough, you hit a certain stage in life where people add a little phrase to that. Yes. Just three words. You look good for your age, for your age. In other words, it's not that you look good in absolute terms. No, no, no. You look good for your age. Wrinkles and flat and age spots have you deteriorated at a lower rate than many of your peers. You look good by comparison with other deteriorating people. You look good for your age. It's tough. Tough getting old. My doctor told me last week, you're obese. I said, hey, I definitely want a second opinion. He said, okay, so you're kind of ugly too. It's tough getting old. So how attractive is attractive enough? How many of you, by show of hands, have not been named sexiest man or woman of the year by people like you? Looks like we're all in the same boat. Now, I say all this because we're in this series called Sola. 
And we're kind of putting sticks in the ground about what's really true. Today, sola grace. In other words, we're saying we're not in God's good favor because we're shockingly successful or accomplished or attractive. No, we are saved, accepted, forgiven, embraced, loved, declared to be right and in a relationship with God by grace alone. Sola grace. Grace only. You know, grace is all over the Bible. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, words that would become stake-in-the-ground words for the church for a long, long time. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Those are important words. Let's read them aloud together. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We live in kind of a boasty world, but Paul's saying that salvation is not boastworthy. And this is really, really important for all of us to get pretty clear on, that it's all about grace alone. And the old definition of grace, which is a good one, is that grace is unmerited favor. And it's that word unmerited that's really, really good, but it kind of sticks in our craw. Because the ancient Greeks would use this word to describe somebody who was weak or needy or dependent. And then a strong person might come and help that person for no apparent reason. Nothing that the weak one had done at all. That's grace. Grace is God's choice to love and forgive and embrace and help us when we have done nothing to earn it. Grace recognizes that we're flaws at the very core. See, it's not just that we got dealt an unfair hand in life. And that's why we struggle with bitterness or doubt or greed or lust or anger or whatever. At the very core, it's not somebody else's fault. I am fallen and imperfect. This goes all the way back to the beginning. It's in my nature. Nobody needed to teach us how to sin or how to be selfish or rebellious. It came pretty naturally to us. There's a guy that I talk about his daughter, Shauna. She's a real strong-willed kid. You've been around a really strong-willed kid. When she was four years old, one of the problems they would have is that she'd get on her tricycle and she would ride it to places where she was not supposed to be. And her mom got so frustrated one day, she came out of the front yard and said, Shauna, look, here's the tree, here's the edge of the driveway, here's the sidewalk. You can ride your bike between the tree and the sidewalk, but if you go beyond that, I'm going to spank you. I'm going to spank you. Now I'm going to go back inside. We've got this big window. You see that big window? I'm going to be watching you. If you go past your boundary, I will come out and there will be spanking. Well, Shauna was not intimidated by this at all. She, okay, four years old, she went up to her mother, stuck her little hip out, pointed to it, and said, well, you better spank me now because i got places to go. <laughs> That's the human condition. At the very heart of it is this reality that the human will has gotten off track. We've turned our hearts from God. I have, and you have. So the question is for all of us, where do we go from here? All right, here's where we are. Where do we go from here? Will we try to behave our way into favor with God, or will we humble ourselves and simply receive what Jesus died to give us? There's an alternative to grace in the Bible. The Bible talks about it as works righteousness. Works righteousness. Say that with me. Works 
I'm going to do the pull up my own bootstraps thing. I'm going to be good enough. If I try really, really hard to stay on the sand and I keep really good boundaries and I, and I continue to be really, really disciplined, well, surely God will honor that, right? That impresses God, right? If I don't do the big sins, if I do a lot of good stuff, I do a lot of church stuff, well, then I get classified as one of the good ones, right? I think grace says, just stop. Just stop. You cannot be good enough. You can't. You can't stay clean enough. You can't be committed enough. You can't deny yourself enough. That's a treadmill that never shuts off. And when you fall, because you will, the crash will be painful. And God provides a better way. We need to understand very, very clearly, friends, that Jesus did not come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people alive. Amen. So we need to be reminded regularly, especially those of us who tend to gravitate away from grace and we gravitate towards defining our relationship with God by our behavior. Because if you want to make sure that you get credit for your goodness, if you want to mix law and grace, you want to mix religion and Christianity. Paul lowers the boom in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 10. Here's what he says. He says, those who depend on the law, what he's saying here is, those who depend on rules, religion, behavior, the commandments, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. All of them. Here's what he's saying. If you'd rather try to please God and gain his favor by obeying the rules of religion, then you've got to do it on his terms, not yours. It is his law, after all. So if you opt for rule-keeping and religion to try to please God, then you've got to keep them all. All. All of them. You've got to ace his test every day for the rest of your life. 100% of the law, 100% of the time. You can't pick and choose the commands that work for you and ignore the ones that don't. Nope. All of them. All of them, all the time. No bad days, no stumbles at all. You drop the ball one time, game over. You put one thing ahead of God one time, game over. One impure thought, game over. 100% of the law, 100% of the time. Do you really want that? When you time, take time to look thoroughly at the law and the commandments, it becomes painfully obvious to me that I can't do all this. The Ten Commandments are just a portion of the law, and I've blown those up. Seems like I can't, can't get 100% for a day, much less for the rest of my life. So, if you're sharp, you might come up with a pretty good question related to all this. You might think like, okay, if we can't keep the law, can't keep the commandments, all of them, why do they exist in the first place? Here's what Paul says, here's how he phrases that thought in Galatians 3. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? I mean, it seems like a fair question. After all, everybody blows it. Why is it even there? He goes into the answer right after that in the verses uh, that follow. Galatians 3.20. He says the law was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child was promised. 
Is there a conflict then, he goes on to say, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. We're all prisoners of sin. Saying that the law showed us two things, two very important things. It showed us what sin was. And it showed us that we're all guilty of it. Show us what it is, and we're all guilty of it. Let me explain something that's pretty important here. God doesn't point out sin in order to have something to hold against us. If we had the wisdom of God, then we would see that sin is not just an offense against the Holy God, but sin is something that harms the creation that God loves so much, namely you and me. Sin hurts you. Sin hurts others. Sin complicates your life. God wants to spare you from that, and he's provided a way for that to happen. And the law was a step in the process of getting us there. So the law showed us two things. It showed us what sin was, and it showed us that we're all guilty of it. Well, that's not good news. I know that. But Paul gives us the good news on the back end of that bad news. Here's what he says in verse 24. Pay attention to the words here. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Right, let me just give you a thimbleful of history here for a moment. Back in the Bible days, back in the, the days of the height of the Greek and Roman Empire, amongst those who were very, very wealthy, there was something called a pedagogos. This phrase from, from verse 25 that we read a moment ago includes that word, and it's translated guardian. The Pythagogos was a servant whose main job was to take the children to school. And if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice that the word is actually translated schoolmaster. It was a trusted family servant that would take responsibility for leading the children safely to school. So the purpose of the law, not according to me, but according to God's own word, was to lead us to Christ, to lead us to Jesus. Because when you look at the, at the law and say, I, I, can't, I can't do all this. No matter how hard I try, I keep failing. I can't do it on my own. That's when God steps in and says, of course you can't. You need me, not rules. The rules show you that the standard is too high to keep on your own. You can't, Bob can't, Sally can't, Mother Teresa couldn't. The righteousness bar is unreachable and it's immovable. The law can't get you there, but there's another way. It's me, God says. Me. Come to me and receive grace and mercy in your time of need. I'll give it. That's why I sent Jesus, God says. He kept the law perfectly. He satisfied the requirements of the law for you. If you could be justified by the law, by religion, by behavior, by being good enough, then Jesus died for nothing. But he didn't die for nothing. He's your only hope. So what's the purpose of the law? To lead us to Jesus. Now God's grace and his acceptance is amazing, but he won't force you to receive it. He offers it to you. He offers himself to you. The commandments, the law, the rules, they serve a purpose. 
It was to show you your need and point you to the loving forgiveness and grace of Jesus. It was not, it was not to empower you to a life of rule keeping. Author John Elfridge put it this way. He said, teach a man a rule and you help him solve a problem. Teach a man to walk with God and you help him solve the rest of his life. In Victor Hugo's great book, Les Miserables, which is the book which became a play, which became a movie, uh, in Les Mis, there's such a stirring contrast between law and grace that it's breathtaking. It's really the climax of the whole story. So Javert, the uh, law-driven inspector on a mission to fulfill the letter of the law, he is faced, at the end of the movie, faced with grace once again. And he ends up taking his own life because he cannot seem to accept grace. For him, law makes sense. It's easy to understand, it seems fair, and it seems manageable. But most of all, it keeps you in control. You can keep score. Grace defies logic and it defies fairness. Turns everything upside down and inside out. Just watch the show up here.
because we've been raised to expect that performance brings approval and reward. And when you hear those words, of course you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Well, that sets off our cynical warning bells, doesn't it? We think stuff like, okay, wait a minute. I didn't fall for the Ethiopian millionaire and exile scam, and I'm not falling for this either. What's the catch? What's the catch? When you really face grace for the first time, it is most definitely unsentimental. Great author Robert Kimon, he brilliantly lays out this very, very honest prayer for someone that is resisting grace. Listen to these words, this prayer. Lord, please restore to us the comfort of merit and demerit. Show us that there's at least something we can do. Tell us at the end of the day there will be at least one redeeming card of our very own. Lord, if it's not too much to ask, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, please do not preach grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. Friends, we buck and we fight and we, we resist grace at first. But if we can just let go and trust, then the good news just keeps getting better and better. His grace is sufficient for me. It's sufficient for you. Religion and behavior modification cannot get you anywhere you really want to be. Follow Jesus and receive his grace. Let me just leave you with one final word that comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Here's what he says. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Walk with me and work with me. Why shall I do it? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So what? Grace. Only grace. That's how we come to God. I want you to bow your hands and pray. We're so grateful, Lord, for your word, which lights our way. Lord, lots of us here in this room have spent a season of our lives on the treadmill of behavior, religion, trying to modify our lives in a way that hopefully will someday please you. Thank you for the message, the truth of grace, that we are saved by grace through faith, trusting in you and your goodness, not in me and my goodness. Lord, help us to become good receivers of your love and your grace. And for those here that are still struggling, Lord, I pray that this day they might lay hold of your grace by faith, and let them let go and trust. Lord, we don't want to come to that place where we're so frustrated by rules, commands, and religion that we end up just dropping backwards into the water and giving up. Lord, help us to cling to you. Teach us, Lord, to cling to you more today than we did yesterday. We love you, and we do trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand. Uh, if you are a present here today with a need of some kind, and you want someone to pray with you, pray for you, we'll have a couple of our leaders in the back corner of the room that will be there for you today. All right, don't take a burden home that you brought through these doors this morning. There's no reason to do that. All right? Uh,
leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and remember, the God who came still comes and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. I love you. I love you.